following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Let us turn together to 1 Corinthians 5, where we're studying through this book, 1 Corinthians 5. Tonight we come to this text, which is really a classic passage on the nature of church discipline, a summary of church discipline, a a particular church discipline case. We're not going to approach it in exactly that way as in terms of just a purely... um, study on church discipline itself, but we're going to look at it in a wider way. Twenty-eight years ago, Patty and I went to pastor a PCA church plant in New Jersey in suburban New York City area, and sadly, the church had been racked by… It was, it was a church that was only a few years old, and the founding pastor had been a great pastor in terms of preaching and evangelism, but unfortunately um, had made shipwreck of his marriage and of his pastoral work because of infidelity. And so the church was hurting deeply and um, was struggling, and many of the new believers who had come to know Christ under this man's ministry were deeply struggling with what this really meant about the truth of what this man had preached. Was it all a lie? And some of them didn't stay at the church. Many of them did but it was a difficult time, needless to say. Looking back on that event reminds me a bit of 1 Corinthians 5. Let's hear God's Word. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh." so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, 
If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. The pastor that I followed was deposed from the Christian ministry by the New Jersey Presbytery and ultimately was excommunicated from the church for unrepentance, refusing to turn away from the choices he had made, which brought much sorrow upon the local church and much sorrow certainly upon his family as well. So we have some sense from things like that and certainly what Paul describes here of the need for church discipline. But I would like to back up and look at more fundamental points we might even say that we see from our text in terms of the discipline of God and the purity of the church. And our first point is this. The church is called to mourn when confronted with sin in her midst. The church is called to mourn when confronted with sin in her midst. And unfortunately, as long as we are on this side of glory, the church will be racked with occasions when it finds serious sin that it must deal with in its midst. Here we see in Corinth that apparently because of arrogance and pride and some of the false teaching that was evident in this church, that there was Instead of a sense of mourning over sin and humility, there was an arrogance that somehow um, caused them to simply sweep under the rug this very scandalous sin, to just ignore it. And it's interesting the way Paul describes this sin, um, that this man had this infidelity, uh, this relationship with his stepmom. And in verse 1, Paul describes it in a sense that It's so shameful that even pagans know that this is wrong. In other words, what a bad uh, dishonoring of Christ in the church. And this isn't the only kind of response that a church might have to sin, of sweeping it under the rug, of trying to ignore it, of arrogantly and pridefully thinking that there's no need to deal with it. There is the other extreme, we might say, of just a self-righteousness that looks for any and every kind of sin to discipline or to call out in that sense. But in a balance between those two extremes, we might say, there's a calling for the church to mourn sin, to have a humble, prayerful attitude about sin in its midst. And we think of sections of Scripture like Galatians 6, which is another passage that talks about the church, how the church responds to scandalous sin or serious sin in its midst. And there Paul says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. But then note some of the characteristics of those who are called to restore, to restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So there's not an arrogance or pride, there's gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So there's this attitude of 
of watchfulness of self, of our own temptations and the fact that any of us could fall. And then he goes on, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And of course, the law of Christ is the law of love. So there's this calling to reclaim and restore this person in gentleness and in true humility and watchfulness and with genuine love. That's true for leaders of the church. That's the calling for leaders who are called to exercise the keys of the kingdom as they're called to admit people into the visible church and also to exclude them at times in this extreme case. But that characteristic of mourning and humble, prayerful watchfulness is to be true for every member of the church. As we see sin, as we encourage and exhort one another, it's interesting that Tim talks about the need for biblical counseling in Taiwan and how we need biblical counseling in the United States too. It's said that The first counselor that anyone goes to is a friend. And so, we are to be counseling one another in the body of Christ, and probably the first person you're going to talk to if there's some matter in your life will be a friend, and we're called to have this Galatians 6 spirit of seeking to restore and exhort and gently and lovingly deal with one another in our sin. But note the nature of sin here. We mourn because sin is so insidious. The New Testament church wasn't immune from sin. We see it glaringly in a number of spots. No church is ever immune from sin. We are all sinners saved by grace, of course, and not, uh, unfortunately, not done with sin in this life. But sin deceives, sin blinds. And one of the very typical responses to sin when it is exposed is to justify yourself, is to rationalize your sin or to blame others for your sin or to excuse your sin. It's interesting in the, in the diagnosis that we find in James chapter 1 where James talks about this, uh, the fact that how we are tempted by sin and that God is not the one who tempts us. There he says it's, it's possible for someone when he's tempted to say, I am tempted of God. The modern translation of that would be something along these lines. Essentially, God has made me this way. I just can't help myself. That's just the way I am. And there's my excuse for my sin. And so, sin must be mourned. One of the primary uh, reasons that we mourn, whenever a believer falls into scandalous sin, in church discipline, You know, why aren't we disciplining all of us all the time? Well, hopefully it's because we're repentant of our sin. But there are certain kinds of sin that rise to the level unrepented scandalous sin or unrepented heresy or severe divisiveness in the church or serious private offense, these kind of things. If somebody is a a swindler or cheater, notice that's in the verse further down. Uh, if there's serious private offense that's unresolved, if you cheat someone in your job, well, that's the kind of thing that could arise to the level of church discipline. But one of the primary reasons that we mourn sin in our midst is that whenever a believer falls into this kind of extreme or scandalous sin, 
it gives opportunity for the honor of Christ to be dragged in the mud. That's seen when televangelists fall into infidelity. The watching world loves to be given an excuse to mock the church and her Lord when the world sees blatant hypocrisy and sin. And it dishonors Christ to some degree. He is so bound up in His church, His bride. We were at a family wedding last weekend in Houston, and uh, we had a few hours free, and so a couple carloads of us, of our family members, were driving around just a very exclusive kind of old money area of Houston. And we knew from talking to my in-law's friend who grew up there that a pastor lived in this very exclusive area and had a mansion that was something to see. So one of our kids got online on their iPhone and found out the address because we were right in the area there, and we drove by this mansion of a pastor of one of the biggest churches in the United States. And we just kind of oohed and awed. But we all had the sense of, this is really dishonoring to Christ from our limited perspective at least. I'm sure that there are Christians in the third world who would look at my house and think, how can a pastor live in a $200,000 house, you know? And isn't that lavish? And, you know, so it is a gray area, but still, you know, this, is, this was maybe a 5 to $10 million mansion with a giant wall in a very exclusive place. It was interesting. The further you drove back these roads, the bigger the houses got until finally you needed binoculars to kind of see through the, the, the amazing grounds. And we could hardly drive by some of these streets because there were so many workers' trucks parked there working on these homes during the day. It was just an astounding thing. But it just made me stop and think, and as I studied these verses, to think about how, how Christ is dishonored by the sins of His church. Of course, we know that no church is without sin. We are still sinners saved by grace. But we also know that we are to be growing in godliness and becoming more holy in thought and in life and in all that we are. But this text makes it clear that it brings great dishonor to Christ by the watching world when a professing believer falls into scandalous sin. And it's clearly a hindrance to the cause of the gospel for a time in that particular place and time. And so it is right that we mourn. And it is right for the church to seek to faithfully exercise pastoral oversight, to seek to be shepherding the flock of God and calling people to repentance, but in extreme cases, as you know if you've been in our church for any length of time, to in the extreme cases, exercise church discipline. We'll see a little bit more about that. But before we go to our next point, just to apply this point, it's easy for us to look at this and think, oh, this is awful. Or look at that pastor who owned that mansion. But we are also, as we mourn, we're called to mourn over our own sin as well. In fact, one of the disciplines of the Christian life, if you think of praying regularly through the Lord's Prayer, as Martin Luther talks about using the Lord's Prayer as a guideline for prayer. Not that we say the same literal words every day. We can do that, but also to meditate on their implications every day. One passage is, forgive us our debts. 
and lead us not into temptation. And that whole area of examining our hearts for what are our idols, what are the desires that tend to rule us, how do these wrong heart attitudes lead to sins both great and small? Mourning over the sins of the church really begins by a biblical mourning and confession and repentance daily of our own sin. So we need to start with ourselves. Secondly, from our text, we find that the church is always called to fight for the sanctification and holiness of every believer. Now, of course, in one sense, all believers are sanctified once and for all and made holy in Jesus Christ. We know that's the case. But then in terms of the outworking of that in their lives, the church is to be doing that. We love that hymn, the church is like a mighty army. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. And you see that hymn go through the, the church being racked with heresies and distressed with different things and, and fighting while it is the church militant until finally when Jesus comes, we will be the church triumphant, no longer fighting with remaining sin. But until that day, we know that we're told that we are to help one another in each other's spiritual growth. I like where it says in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, it talks about the one anothering. Scripture talks about one anothering in various ways, but here it talks about uh, how we are called to exhort one another. It says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Here we see the the deceitfulness, the danger of sin tricking us and deceiving us and lying to us. And so by word, by example, by fellowship, by corporate worship, the church, we are called to exhort one another in this way. In fact, we could say it this way, all of us are always under the discipline of the church. Yes, there are extreme radical forms of it, we might say, but when we take membership vows in our church, we all promise to submit to the discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace. We all submit to the discipline of the church. And that just doesn't only have a theoretical sense to it, but we're actively to seek out the church's purity and peace by our own lives, by helping one another in this regard. This chapter, 1 Corinthians 5, focuses on what we would call one of the radical disciplines of the church, one of the extreme forms of excommunication, actually. And we see in verses 9 through 13, I'm not going to go into depth there, but it, Paul talks about putting this person out of their midst. And you see he's talking about uh, they had been confused about what that meant in terms of their relationship with unbelievers. But he's saying, I'm not saying don't associate with unbelievers who sin like this or these kinds of things. He says, you would have to go out of the world if you were going to be that isolated. He's saying, no, someone who is called a believer, who professes Christ and who is guilty of this unrepentant kind of scandalous sin, that's the kind of individual you are called to put out of the visible church. Notice what it means is a cutting off of an unrepentant member from the visible 
body of Christ. And I would highlight the fact it is unrepentant. A Christian can fall into any sin, but if there's repentance, then that person can be restored. And the goal of church discipline, we could take some time to go into the the goals of church discipline that come out from this text. And they are to vindicate the glory of God and the honor of Christ, to ultimately restore the offender. The goal of this was that this person is restored, and it's likely we're told in 2 Corinthians that Paul is calling them to restore this man at this point. But also, thirdly, to maintain the purity of the church. And we see that in verses 6, 7, where he says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Typically in Scripture, leaven or yeast symbolizes evil. There's a parable that it symbolizes something good, but that's an exception. So leaven is a symbol for sin and evil. And Paul is saying, for the glory of God, to ultimately restore the offender, to maintain the purity of the church, to cause others to realize that we must not scandalously sin like this, put this person out. That's radical discipline. But in a more ordinary sense, all of us are always under what we might call the formative discipline of the church. Maybe you haven't ever really thought about this, but we all sit under the preaching and teaching ministry of the Word. The Word comes to all of us, preacher included. And by the way, the preacher often gets the Word of God most powerfully because God is dealing with us before we are able to preach, convicting us of our sin and our need to trust Christ and walk with Him in certain ways. We all put ourselves under the preaching and teaching of the church. We all participate in corporate worship where we confess our faith and confess our sin. We sing hymns of praise that have a lot to do about glorifying God and our devotion to our Lord and rededicating our lives to God in that sense of of daily Romans 12, 1 and 2, kind of giving our lives as a living offering to God. We pray together and pray for one another. We all need, in other words, we all need the everyday normal, formative discipline of the church. That is God's purpose for the church. He is sanctifying us practically. He is working out the holiness of Christ in our lives. And for each of us, we need the body of Christ. To put it another way, we could say it this way. The local visible church is the God-appointed context for every believer to be growing in Christ and living for Christ. It's the God-appointed context for us to grow in Christ. And so the church is to fight and to labor for the spiritual growth of every member to the glory of God. We must not give up on that task. And by the way, the converse of that is true. If a believer is not actively involved in the body of Christ, you can be sure that that person will end up being stunted to some degree in his or her growth in Christ. Certainly, there are exceptional times when you might be in a rare place where there is not a visible expression of the body of Christ around the world somewhere. Of course, God is gracious to us and helps us through those times, but 
generally speaking, when Christians aren't engaged and involved and active in a local expression of the body of Christ, a Bible-believing church, their spiritual growth will be stunted. And so we must fight for one another and for the growth of the body of Christ in this way. I think of, I think of the fellowship of golf. How about the fellowship of golf? You know, Tiger Woods was out of golf for a time. I'm not sure how much he was out of golf. And I know it was because of an injury and personal affairs in his life and maybe aging and things like that. But um, maybe some of you know, and I'm not sure how much he's making a comeback this year. But I noticed that I think some tournaments, he didn't even make the cut. This was the greatest golfer of all time. And certainly he hasn't really won anything that I know about. Maybe he has, and I just don't know it. But I don't think he's won any big tournaments. Um, But the idea I'm trying to get across here is clearly in any professional athlete, you need the sharpening of your fellow athletes. You need to be actively involved in the sport. You just can't go it alone and in any way compete on the level of what these professional athletes do. Even LeBron James, you know, isn't, can't just go out on his own and just do his thing on the basketball court. No, you need the fellowship of that sport. Maybe that, maybe that illustration falls a bit short, but my point is, if that's true for sports, how much more true for the spiritual warfare and the building up of the body of Christ? We need one another deeply. We are all members of one another. Well, my application for this point is to just think about the area in which we are called to fight for holiness for one another. Think of sexual purity. That's the issue that was at point here in 1 Corinthians 5. Certainly, Corinth was an ungodly place, but we're getting almost to the level of Corinth in the United States now. And it's a real issue in our time, we know. We all need the formative discipline of the church to seek to stay pure and single-mindedly devoted to Christ in a culture that is going downhill, don't we? Or think of just the area of marital faithfulness. When you think of marriages that are so tempted and easily fall, and um, I know that it was a sobering thing for me to be the pastor of a church where the pastor preceding me had, had fallen into this great sin When marriage is so under fire, we need the fellowship of believers to help us to stay true to our marriages. Or you could just think of the temptations that suffering and trials bring into Christians' lives. When there is deep suffering, when there are difficult trials that people go through, the tendency is to actually isolate yourself from the body of Christ, when if anything, you need the opposite. You need to be more engaged and how much we need one another in those deep trials and sufferings. Or just think of the area of needing wisdom for life decisions, needing wise counselors to be speaking into your life and important things that you face. We could go on and on with the different areas where temptations and trials and and decisions come, how we need the body. Well, that brings me to my last point. Our God is faithful to discipline His people for their ultimate good and sanctification. Our God is faithful to discipline His people for their ultimate good and sanctification. This chapter is really about the church's functioning in seeking to rightly deal with sin in her midst, 
But standing behind all this, as we read this, we see the higher, and we might say the prior, working of our God. In other words, when God gives us new life in Christ, we are made holy in Christ once for all, but God is also, from that day on, using His fatherly hand of discipline to conform us more and more to Christ in our lives, in our walk with Him, in our thoughts, in our words. Notice verses 4 and 5, where Paul is talking about this act of discipline he's asking them to carry out. It's very interesting when he describes this. In fact, let me back up to verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So Paul is saying, please don't think that just because I'm not physically there, that I'm not really present with you in spirit. And now notice verses 4 and 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Notice in verse 4, there's this repetition of this phrase, in the name of the Lord Jesus, in the power of our Lord Jesus. Clearly, Paul is speaking about God being at work in their midst. When they're assembled, it's like the phrase, when two or three are gathered in your name, there I am in the midst of you. The Lord Jesus Christ is present with you, Paul is saying. And then he talks about when they put this man out, he uses this very interesting phrase, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, there's debate about what that means. One idea is that it means for the destruction of the sinful flesh, meaning remaining sin, the old man. And it's possible it means that, but probably not because the context here tells us that this is really what Satan is immediately doing. Satan is the immediate cause of this. And Satan would never be at work to destroy remaining sin, Satan would never want to do that. Satan wants to encourage remaining sin and tempt us with our remaining sin. Most probably, the word flesh there, and flesh in the New Testament has a range of meaning. The word flesh means body, physical body. And so Paul is referring to bodily suffering, the destruction of the flesh, bodily affliction. It's very similar to Job. When Satan was given permission from God to test Job. Satan was given permission, and one of the first things he did was physical affliction. In fact, later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, when Paul is addressing abuses of the Lord's Supper, he really is talking about the discipline of God on them, and he says, that is why many of you are weak and sick, and some of you have died. Notice that parallel kind of idea that God's discipline in bodily affliction coming on them there. And in fact, I think it's very similar to 2 Corinthians 12, 7. I'm not going to turn there, but when you think about there where Paul's talking about the thorn in the flesh, he says that there was given to him a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, There's the immediate reason and cause. Satan is always up to something evil. Satan wanted to torment him. And in the next phrase, Paul says, but it was to keep him from becoming puffed up with pride 
because of the revelations given to him. Again, very similar to here. It's got an immediate cause and an ultimate cause. And here, the immediate cause is deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Think, most likely, bodily affliction in some way as he's put out of the church that is going to have that repercussion in his life somehow. But the ultimate cause then, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That is God's ultimate goal of restoration and saving this man from this pathway and this course of sin, to reclaim the offender, to using this, uh, we might even say, satanic affliction that befalls him in order that spiritually he is saved and restored. It's almost this sense here that as they put this man out of the church, he's almost, in a sense, put out from the divine protection of God and he's in Satan's realm, and Satan will and may do these very various things to him. This isn't saying that in the church we're protected from all physical affliction by no means, but clearly this is probably uh, the idea behind this. So, in other words, the goal of church discipline is restoration, that the person may come to true repentance, that ultimately this sin would not lead to full and final apostasy and falling away in that sense. And this verse is telling us that God is at work in this process. God is faithful to lovingly discipline His people. And really, it's a very similar theme to Hebrews. When we think about what Paul says in Hebrews chapter 12 about the the author of the Hebrews there talks about God's discipline. He disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. And then he, he exhorts them, lift up your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, your uh, weak knees. And then he says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Again, he points to that final day of seeing Christ. And the kind of holiness he's referring to there is practical holiness that we grow in. And Christians are to be growing in that kind of holiness, not perfectly by any means. But certainly, we're encouraged that the the, the fatherly discipline of God is at work, a truth full of consolation and hope for us all. I think of this matter of church discipline and all of the church discipline cases I've been involved with over the years, some on a presbytery level, some with the local church, many in this church as well. And I just think of the outcomes, some good, some not so good, or we don't know what the outcome is because we lose touch with the individual. And certainly the story is not finished in many of them, we hope. We hope that there's going to be repentance. And in all of this, as I look back on on really years of seeking to faithfully administer discipline in the church, I see the weakness of the church that the church, in a sense, we are very weak instruments. And yet, how encouraging to think, but God promises to be at work. It is the power of Christ that is at work in our weak and, in a sense, feeble means in and of themselves. And I think verses 6 through 8 brings this out. When he's talking about this leaven, at the end of verse 7, he says, for Christ our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. He's talking about the death of Christ. 
And then verse 8, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I think he's talking here about the indicative, who we are in Christ. Christ has been sacrificed. He's been raised from the dead. And so, the New Testament imperative exhorts us, be who you are in Christ. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed. And then, so he says, celebrate the festival. What does he mean by that? Are we supposed to observe Passover feast? Uh, No, he's not even talking about the Lord's Supper here per se. He'll get to that later on in the book. But he's speaking figuratively about the, the, the joy Christians have in knowing that they are cleansed from sin. And this exhortation, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He's talking about the characteristics of the Christian life. Celebrating our freedom in Jesus Christ, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2.12. Consecrating ourselves to do the Lord's will, to celebrate a life of obeying the will of Christ from the heart. You see, he's saying the old leaven is really characterized by what the unbeliever is ultimately like. And it's interesting, the words he uses, malice and evil. We could say ill will and evil. Not that all believers are, are unbelievers are wholly like that. No, many of them humanly are very kind and good in different ways, but he's saying fundamentally it's oriented around self. Christians are to be characterized by sincerity and truth. They're to put off the old leaven, so to speak, the old ways of sin. And Paul is directing these Christians to the truth of Jesus Christ, their union with Christ, and their calling to work that out in their lives with genuine holiness and sincerity, singleness of heart, and truth. The application then, live a life of joyful obedience to Christ, joyful trust, trust in Jesus Christ every day. The end of the New Jersey story, the pastor who was disciplined and excommunicated did eventually come to a better end. Years down the road while I was still at that church, he came back, and he and his wife, whom he had left with years before, sat in my office with me and talked about how deeply sorry they were for what they had done in ruining two families. And our church, as a result of that and working with the presbytery, had a service of restoration. It was an interesting thing, a rare thing that you really don't see very much, but he was restored, never restored to ministry, but restored to the body of Christ and to a local church nearby. We thank the Lord for that, but of course, there was uh, good and bad in all of that. Satan is out to destroy Christ's church. Let us do all we can to glorify Jesus Christ, to walk with Him, and to build up the church for which He died. Amen. Father, we come to You and pray that You would help us to be warned from this text, help us to be sober-minded as a result of it, not to fear in an earthly, worldly way, but to fear in a godly way, to be reminded of how precious the church is to You, the church for whom You died. And Father, we pray that You would help us to do all we can to build up each other for the glory of God and the good of Your body, the church. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.